This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is sponsored by The Forward. Stay up to date with unlimited access to news, culture, and opinion all through a Jewish lens. And for our listeners, for 2NJB listeners, get six months of The Forward for only $10. That's 67% off. An exclusive subscription offer for our listeners, forward.com slash 2NJB, and get six months for 10 bucks. Also in collaboration with Arutz Sheva, IsraelNationalNews.com. And last but not least, in collaboration with Australian Jewish News, check them out at AJN.TimesOfIsrael.com. If you grew up in a religious or even a traditional Jewish home, this might sound familiar to you. It's dinner time on Tuesday night and you served yourself way more food than you can eat. Seeing that you didn't finish the food on your plate, your mother reprimands you with those two words. Bal Tashchit. Bal Tashchit is one of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament and it literally translates to you shall not destroy or you shall not waste. These two words are at the center of the Jewish debate on environmentalism. Today we're joined by Rabbi Yonatan Nerol, co-author of Echo Bible, a book on what the Bible has to say about ecology and creation care. We are happy to be joined by Rabbi Nerol to talk about the environment, about climate change, and about what nice Jewish boys and girls should do to care for our planet. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well. Great to be here. So is, is it really just Baal Tashchit? Does that sum it up? Or is there, are there more things the Torah has to say about uh, the environment? Well, that's actually why we published Eco Bible. At least volume one just came out last week on Genesis and Exodus, a commentary on 200 different verses. And then we're publishing volume two on Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy on another 250 verses. Some people think that Jewish ecology is just about Tu Bishvat, about planting a tree once a year, maybe a little about Noah's Ark, and for some, Baal Tashchit. But part of what we've done with this book is shown that there's actually hundreds of verses where the Torah relates to ecological wisdom and where the rabbinic sages from the past couple thousand years also share some very deep insights. And if you had to like sum it up, what do you think, like... If you had to, if one if you had to if our listeners had to take one thing away from this like what is your perspective on what Jewish Judaism says on you know environmentalism what our what our perspective on environmentalism should be well I'll just give you one example it says in the second chapter of Genesis verse 15 God placed the human being in the Garden of Eden to serve it and to conserve it. That's how Rabbi Jonathan Sachs translates it. That we're supposed to be responsible. We're supposed to take responsibility for this amazing planet that God has put us in and given us life in. And we're supposed to treat it with respect. There's a a Jewish teaching, a Midrash, that says that God showed Adam all the trees of the Garden of Eden and said to him, Everything that I created, I created for you. See how beautiful and praiseworthy are my works. Be careful not to degrade or destroy it, because if you do, there will be no one after you to repair it. And that's an important message. But um, I'm completely secular. Uh, it's a disclaimer. So 
the whole, to me, I don't really resonate with this type of conversation because to me, but I wonder, isn't the beauty of the Bible, it is so vague that almost any agenda, you can find uh, justifications for it in the Bible? Uh, yes and no. Um, you know, there's some things that I think are, are flow more organically, and that's part of what we've done here in, in, in producing a commentary on 450 verses, is that it's not just a, an incidental theme. You know, if you wanted to, uh, you know, what does the Bible say about brain surgery? Well, there isn't that much on there, but in terms of how do we relate to creation, how do we relate to the physical world, I think there's a lot, there is a lot there. In terms of what you said about being secular, so, you know, I think that this book is also has appeal to people who don't necessarily read the Bible very often or maybe don't even believe in it. About 85% of people in the world consider themselves faith adherents. They, they may not be practicing every day, but over 6 billion people identify with a faith. And I think for some people who might consider themselves secular, this book also can sort of give them encouragement that religious communities are, are starting to get on board in addressing the ecological crisis. Uh, for, since, for the past 50 years, the ecological movement has been led by secular people, and I think because of that, because it hasn't uh, really had the full participation of religious communities, it's, there, there's been lacking because most people in the world identify with a faith. So this might be uh, controversial, what I'm about to say, but, but uh, today the, discor the discourse around climate change has been so politicized, right? And there's this, um, it's almost, it's almost uh, um, heretical, her right? It's almost heresy to say and to question it or to say anything that might be doubtful of, right? So it's like, how could you uh, question the, the, the consensus of the 97% and so on and so forth? There's this, you know, and on the other side, it's like, well, this is science. How could you even like, right? There's, the, there's also the, the, the rational, logical, scientific side, which says, well, I mean, there's evidence and, you know, how could you not get on board with this? So it's, it's become this, this very controversial, very politicized thing. And I wonder if you think that to be... To, to listen to the wisdom that Jewish that Judaism has on in the environment that that it bestows upon us on you know how we should look at you know uh, the way we care for our planet if that means that we have to necessarily take I don't know believe this is a crisis that we're in the, the midst of if, if it means that we have to somehow think something about climate change or is there a way to just look at it I don't know as a way of how do we live our day-to-day -day lives so I think the ecological crisis is much deeper than, than many people think. Climate change is just one symptom of it. My wife and my two kids and I, uh, our, our two kids, we went swimming in the Mediterranean at Nakhcholim uh, about a month ago, two months ago. And for the first time in my life, when I went into the water, I saw, I, I couldn't swim without encountering plastic. Oh, I thought you, it was going to jellyfish. So we, we, we were there in, in, in late August after the jellyfish season. Okay. Uh, and it was, it was amazing because, you know, I'd never seen so much plastic in the sea before. And some people think, oh, well, this is just plastic that came from people littering on the beach, which actually is not the case because people weren't littering very much on that beach. The, the, we're dealing with ecological challenges that are 
finally uh, showing up for us in our day-to-day -day lives. And this is happening around the world uh, because humanity is now approaching 8 billion people and many billions of those people are consuming at a standard of material living that our ancestors only dream, could only dream about. So in terms of... Or have uh, nightmares about, yeah. possibly. <laughs> so in terms of what you're saying of, you know, of, of how do people relate to climate change, so I think that it's actually, you know, people who are skeptical or deny climate science and the 97% of climate scientists, I think there's a deeper issue. It's really not about, you know, the frequency of hurricanes and whether, you know, getting into the nitty gritty of, you know, is this because of volcanoes or because of a sunspot, um, even though the scientists are clear that it's human caused and it's getting worse and we need to do something about it. Um, I think at a deeper level, the reaction that many people have is that, if the ecological crisis is real, it means that we actually need to change our lifestyles. And for many people, the current lifestyle is very comfortable. It's very attractive, eating a lot of meat, flying places, driving a car wherever you want to go. And so to say that the ecological crisis is here is an inconvenient truth. It means we have to do something about it. I see. But there are many uh, byproducts of the way we live our lives today. Uh, and, you know, I guess the, the uh, surplus in which we live our lives today that, that I, we, you might argue aren't necessarily just uh, comforts, which we would have to forego, you know? Like the fact that we drive uh, cars and that, you know, we just heard an ambulance. The fact that we can get people to the hospital so fast is thanks to fossil fuels and electricity and you know what I mean? So like there and are plastic and plastic. The fact that, you know, yeah. I don't know, everybody can afford dishware to, to eat on. Yeah, yeah, they the don't have to buy expensive China or, or surgeons have, you know, uh, or we have cheap medical and, equipment. Yeah. So I wonder if, like, I mean, that, that, that I guess goes back to my question is like, I'm all about getting on board for a discussion about like, okay, what do I do about my excess materialism? And like, how do I not waste in my personal life? But I don't like, do you believe that we're going to solve the climate crisis by everybody? I don't know, buying less shirts or, or throwing away less, less trash. So I think that if we're really committed to living sustainably, then we will achieve that. Humanity can do what, it, if it has the will, if it has the ratzon, then we can achieve that. So in terms of curbing climate change, and, and in relation to what you said about, you know, the ambulance and surgical uh, masks. So I would, look, I'm not, I'm not saying we need to go back to the Stone Age and living in caves. And I'm, I support ambulances driving people to hospitals and surgeons having, you know, masks to protect themselves. And... I'm supportive of our reconsidering, for example, how much plastic we use. Right now in the, you know, in the lockdown, the semi-lockdown, there's only takeaway that's available. And after going to that beach and seeing so much plastic, I decided I am not going to order takeaway food from a restaurant that comes in disposable dishes. And so if, so if I you know, go to lunch near my office, I bring my own container and I say to the people working there, I'd like you to put the food in this container. If they're not willing to do so, then I'll go to a different place. Um, 
and you know the, this whole system we have of where everything we eat comes in plastic and actually many layers of packaging. That's a, that's a new system. That our grandparents didn't have such a system. Our grandparents had you know milk carts where they would you know go to the milk store and with their own bottles and return the bottles. So a, a different system is possible. It's just a question of do we have the will to do that? Mm-hmm. But but the, is the problem with the because this when you went to the beach the problem was that people savages threw their garbage no oh, but that's what he's saying that it's not people who threw their trash on the on in the beach it's actually plastic that just exists in the ocean that's be, if i understand correctly that's being washed up well humanity is producing so many millions of tons of plastic every year that the you know we think when we throw away our garbage that it just sort of goes somewhere and we'll never see it again but what what's currently being revealed is that some of our garbage as well as the garbage of people in asia and africa and latin america and some of it north america europe that that garbage actually finds its way into the oceans uh, some of it washes away in rainstorms some of it is actually there's not garbage disposal systems in for for you know billions of people and that washes into the oceans and then people think okay well then in the oceans it's just going to stay there well so part of it does stay in the oceans and there's a huge uh, pacific garbage patch which is about the size of texas but but the the sun actually breaks down some of the plastic how many electorates this garbage uh I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Sh- electorates? Uh, uh, like how many electoral votes? What's the yeah. constituency? Yeah, there. <laughs> yeah, right. How many electoral okay. votes? Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, okay. But actually, some of the garbage that we produce, the plastic breaks down, the sun breaks it down into microplastics, and then that goes, in, then fish eat it, and then we eat those fish, and it ends up in our own systems. You know, we, so part of the deeper message that I'm trying to communicate is that we're all connected everything is interdependent and we're part of one system and if i think that by consuming plastic i just throw it away and it goes away it doesn't go away it actually comes back to me that's like the plastic karma but if we're all connected then if i change my habits it it's meaningless because i'm connected to india and china they will probably never change in africa so but uh, Good. So that's the million dollar question. Does one person make a difference? So according to, 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 to one line of thinking, yeah, with almost 8 billion people, one person doesn't make much of a difference. But according to Jewish teachings, we need to think of our actions as if the whole world depends on us. The Rambam, Maimonides taught that we need to think of Uh, the situation of the world as it's like balanced on a scale that then it's like almost equally balanced and our actions will tip the scale so our actions do make a difference and and even if that's hard to understand so but we can also just think about it for ourselves even if what I'm doing doesn't make a difference in a global scale of for plastic and climate change and biodiversity loss but for my own truth, living in a place of truth, living in integrity with myself and the source of all being, the way that I live does matter. So uh, I want to take us back to the Bible for a second and talk about uh, the Jewish perspective on, on the ecology, because that is what the Echo Bible is, uh, is about. So um, 
I mean, where does where does Judaism land? Because from the little I know about Baltashchit, the little uh, Jewish education I got in high school, like I don't know, over a decade ago, uh, I think we, we we really I remember this like from like tenth grade Talmud studies. But that Baltashchit, there was I mean, the place it comes from is Deuteronomy, right? Where there's the the Kiadam uh, Sadeh, right? Which is always misunderstood, right? Because people always say ki adam like uh, the 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 man is a tree of the field, but it's actually like asked ironically in the Bible, right? Like, it's like the tree of the field is not a man, so you you can't cut it down, because baltashchit or whatever. Uh, and then there's the whole discussion about can you just cut things down unnecessarily? But from what I remember is that if there is a need to cut it down, right? To uh, if it doesn't bear fruit, right, then you can cut it down to create, uh, you know, whatever uh, um, uh, uh, weapons or whatever you need for warfare. And and, uh, and and then there was some debate in the Talmud about whether or not you can you can actually destroy things in order to fill some kind of need. And from what I remember, they, there was there was like a a ruling that you can. Is that accurate or is that not? Good. What so, a rabbi he could be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? look, you remember a lot from your high school, high school class. So, so what you're referring to... It's probably because it was the only Talmud we studied, right? It was like, oh. we studied like a sentence, spent like it's a my semester zero on it. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. So, so look, you're... Uh, just in case not every listener knows, so you're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 19, where the Torah says that it's forbidden to cut down fruit trees in war. And the example the Torah gives is of someone, is of the Israelite army, which is making war on a city. And in order, and the city presumably has a wall around it. And in order to siege the city, the Israelite army would want to cut down the trees to make siege works or ramparts in order to, to, to scale the walls and conquer the city. And the Torah says that in order to make those siege works, it's forbidden to cut down the fruit trees uh, any fruit trees in order to do that. And from that, so that, that's called, called baltashri, that, and that's a principle that the rabbis in the Talmud learn to be a much wider principle. It's not just about destroying fruit trees in war, but it refers to peacetime as well, and it refers to destroying or wasting anything of value to a person. So whether that's water or electricity or gasoline, we're not allowed to waste, and that's actually considered one of the 613 Jewish commandments, that are the commandments of the Bible. So in terms of our lives, we live in a time where there's incredible waste. There's waste of food, and, uh, and the rabbis actually say, well, this is really about not wasting food because the, you, you don't cut down the fruit trees because the fruit trees will produce fruit. And so in our times, about a third of food in Western society is wasted. And so there's a lot of work we can do. We did an episode about that, by the way. And I saw that episode. It was a great mm-hmm. episode. And it's amazing that, you know, some people are trying to salvage food waste. And I actually have some neighbors who, who do dumpster diving. And, uh, you know, there's tons of food. And they actually, in, this is in Jerusalem. They live in West Jerusalem. And they give it to people in East Jerusalem. So there's also like a coexistence aspect of of that work. And there's, so there's so much food that's wasted and we in our own lives can, can make a difference in terms of how much food we take when, if we go to a buffet, in terms of whether we eat our leftovers or not. This is, you know, how much food we waste is in our control. 
I see. So how would you suggest, like, what is the first uh, thing that, you know, just your average Joe, um, your average Jew, your average Joseph can, uh, can do to, you know, curb his waste? Because I think, like, for example, what you described earlier is, sounds pretty amazing, but it's something that might be a drastic change for a lot of people, right? It's all of a sudden, every time they, they think about going to takeout, they have to actually, because you can't, you have to go to the restaurant to give them your, your uh, container. container. So you can't, that means you can't order food anymore. So what is like, I mean, maybe that's what you think is the minimal, but what, what can someone do in their day-to-day life to curb their weight? You're trying to bankrupt Walt. I understand. (laughs) Yeah, so Walt is this uh, delivery system in Tel Aviv where people on bicycles or electric bikes are are bringing around deliveries. In plastic. Lots of plastic there. It's like DoorDash. Yeah, and uh, or Uber Eats. Or Uber Eats, yeah. Uh, And and yeah, and so that that food comes in multiple layers of plastic. There's the, the food itself. You know, if you order a sandwich, so the sandwich is wrapped in paper and then that paper comes in a bag and that bag comes in another bag and and that's like one meal that's like one person eating one meal plus there's the 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 carbon footprint of the motorcycle or car that brought that food to your door i'll say more than that every time i order a hamburger i get a little bag with condiments that i don't want and you know it's sometimes you even click they have an option they started putting an option in 10 base and walt where you click uh, no need for uh, disposables, no need for condiments, whatever. But sometimes you click them and they, they still bring it because they don't even read it. They just throw it in. And then you end up getting all this stuff and, you know, what are you going to do with it? So you throw it or, you know, it stays in your fridge for four months until you throw it. So good. So that's an example of how a green economy is actually a, a more profitable economy because there's a lot waste costs companies money. For them to, to give you those condiments, you know, every customer that's, you know, five shekels, you know, $1.50, that depending on, you know, the sushi, they give you like six different condiments. And so if you click that button and they actually don't give you the things you don't want, then that saves them money as well. So, so there's a, a way. So essentially, what, look, you're right that, you know, many people may not be willing to forego their takeaway, especially in the coronavirus era. I'm I'm putting ideas out there and you know maybe maybe so and some people order takeaway twice a day so maybe they can order less or maybe they can walk down the street with their own container and 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 give them their container or you know when we go back to eating in restaurants one thing I do is I bring my own container to the restaurant because usually there's more food ordered than we can eat and so the food either gets thrown out or we ask them to wrap it up and then we get back to the containers, you know, the disposables. But so if I bring, when I bring my own container, so then that means that I'm live, I'm trying to live, you know, as, as little plastic waste as possible. Yeah. It, need, it takes so much planning though. But this is why, this is where I would say that sometimes the consumerist society and like the capitalist society and conglomeration actually has environmental benefits. So like there's a lot of, you know, uh, anti-capitalism wrapped up in the environmentalist movement today at least in in large parts of it you know i don't want to make a generalization but where i find that you know so this little burger shop i order from right they're like if they were this massive chain like mcdonald's they start counting every penny 
And then they start making those things. And you look, you see McDonald's, for example. McDonald's charges you 50 cents for barbecue sauce or for, you know, ketchup or whatever. And so they give you incentive and the price comes into play. And, okay, you have to think, do I actually want ketchup or do I not want ketchup? And that would be, right, the smart way to go about it is to give a price to, you want a packet of ketchup, so I'll pay 10 agot even. If I don't like really want in the supermarkets it, then I don't here. want it. For in plastic the, bags. For plastic yeah. bags. That, that was a huge debate. Very controversial law. They passed it, I think, four years ago, something like that. Because here in Israel, I don't know how it is in America, but here when you, go to, when you would go to the supermarket, you would celebrate on these plastic bags. Like, this is very Israeli, I think. You would take sometimes dozens of them because they were free and it was very convenient. And then they legislated this law that now you need to pay 10 cents. 10 cents. Uh, for for a, a plastic well, it's bag. It's more like two, three cents. Uh, I don't know if it's what, if it, it didn't actually, stick. it didn't. They don't charge you. No, they do. Of course uh, they do. They charge. Really. They do. They do charge you. But they don't enforce it. They don't care. They do care. They it, do charge it, it you. It depends. And you I never, you don't go to regular, sorry, you don't go to a regular supermarket. I do. I go to Shufelsad. I go to AMPM. MPM is probably not. They ask you how many bags. You tell them two. You end no up taking way. four. That's <laughs> they, you, man. They don't care. That's because you were a thief. thief. That's the second uh, <laughs> commandment. No, but also, don't steal. I've, I've taken two sometimes, and then you're like, can I take another one? Because they, they already charge you. You realize it wasn't enough to hold everything. They're like, you're like, can I take another one? They're like, yeah, whatever. That's the ugly Israeli. <laughs> yeah, although the, the law itself, you know, has, has reduced the amount of plastic bags that people are taking at supermarkets. Yeah. So this is this is having an effect, yeah. you know, and, and people are bringing their reusable bags. Uh, although that's another thing is that, you know, some places now give these 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 reusable bags instead of a plastic bag. Uh, you've probably seen this mm -hmm. uh, in these. Uh, when I say reusable bag, I mean, it's it's made out of some of them are actually made out of a type of plastic. Um, now, those bags are actually uh, they are durable bags. Um, yeah. but you need to use them about 140 times in order for it to be worth not having used plastic bags. And so that's another thing is of, of really trying to make, you know, make our lives sustainable is that we can't make those bags disposable. If, if you know what I mean? I think someone needs to, this is my, uh, takeaway someone needs to write a book you know uh kahneman and tversky and uh, richard thaler the behavioral economists someone needs to 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 start a study because i mean you're talking to two uh semi-libertarians so it's very hard for me to get on board when it's like there's there's the government uh coercively taking action and saying you know a company has to charge money but what I like is when, you know, there's Richard Thaler, he's this behavioral economist, he has this book called Nudge, and he talks about these nudges. The famous one is uh, fly in the urinals in an Amsterdam airport. They found that, you know, you know men, we uh, sometimes have problems with aim, and the bathrooms were getting dirty, and they wanted to find a way to cut down on costs, so they put a little fly in the urinal, right? A little, like, drawing of a fly, and... Like, weirdly, men have this obsession to try and hit it. So it re they would hit the fly and there would be less spillage and they, was the, they reduced costs for the cleaning in the airports. And so I think someone needs to write a book on, like, how to nudge people to make better... Because I've taken those bags countless times and I have just a pile of those bags in my home. 
you know, because I was like, okay, I'm going to start taking a reusable bag to the supermarket. And then I forget. I leave the house and I don't remember. So I wonder, like, what is the thing I can do to make myself live a more environmentally conscious life? Yeah, so that's actually part of EcoBible. In addition to connecting theology and ecology, we also make it practical. So based on the, the 54 Torah portions, that the way the Jews divide up the five books of Moses, at the end of each Torah portion, we have suggested action items. This is practical things that you can do. And that's also part of why I feel like religion is so important here, because, you know, many people don't want draconian regulation to change behavior. And that's part of the reason why, you know, climate action has stalled, in, at least in the United States. It's important for religion to get on board because religion is the biggest NGO in the world. And religious leaders have moral persuasion and they can encourage people to do things that they might not otherwise do. In terms of what you said about, you know, libertarian, one thing about the ecological crisis is that unless we live sustainably, none of us will be free. For example, you said you're from, lives a little while in Alabama. Alabama has had about six hurricanes in the past few months, the record hurricane season in the Atlantic and the Caribbean. And, and many people in southern Alabama, you know, they're getting hit by a hurt. And there's also true southern Louisiana, parts of Texas, the Florida panhandle. You know, there have been about six hurricanes that have come through there. And, 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 and I, I, I read one person who said, look, I'm packing up and leaving. I, I can no longer live here. So if, if you know, there, there's this American ethos of live free or die, but I don't think that liberty is more important than sustainability. Unless we have sustainability, we're not going to have liberty. I think that's where a lot of the Americans have trouble getting on board. And where personally I would is that, you know, it's, it's hard to, even though there's this 97% consensus and, it's hard to say, you know, I don't believe, and I think the Torah also preaches this, that, that none of us know the future. None of us know what the future holds. And the whole idea that, like, we're reaching a point of no return, and, you know, we saw it with the elections in 2016, and now again, no one really knows what's going to happen. And, and, and it, there's a problem to say, you know, because definitively it's almost it's almost heretical in my eyes if from a jewish perspective to like science is science and it deserves its respect but it does not predict the future um it you know it it can't tell you what's going to happen in 50 or 100 years and so to to say because something is going to happen in 50 or 100 years and we know it's almost false prophecy and then it's to say you know we're going to force people to take certain actions because of a false prophet I mean, I don't know. Look, what you just said is, you know, the belief of many millions of people, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people believe what you just said. And, you know, many religious people say, look, you know, they have one argument is that, that only God can change the climate. Human beings can't do that. Another argument they say is that even if we do have an ecological crisis, we don't need to worry about it because the Messiah or God will just take care of it. They'll just, you know, wave a wand and it'll all go away. Now, th maybe that's the case, and I hope that's the case, but there's, a, there's something called a precautionary principle, which is that when everything, when, with the potential that all of human life 
is at stake, and all eight million species that God created is at stake because of the way that we're living now, including our children and our grandchildren, then we would find the will, the ratzon, the motivation to take action even when there's a small degree of uncertainty. And, and that's, a, you know, I, I studied in college with a climate scientist named Stephen Schneider of Blessed Memory, who was one of the early scientists in the 80s who testified before Congress. And he gave a metaphor of, it's like eating a piece of cake, a piece of chocolate cake. If someone comes up to you and says, there's a decent chance that you're going to get terrible food poisoning from eating that cake, would you eat it? And, and that's, and, you know, and another thing is that the climate scientists have, with their, you know, computer models of, of what is likely to happen, they've actually been too conservative in those models. That's another thing that's, that's been revealed in the past several years, that what climate scientists were saying would happen in 50 or 100 years, it's now showing up now. We're, you know, we just had a hurricane Epsilon. This is, there's more hurricanes this season in the Atlantic and the Caribbean than, than there's ever been since we've been recording hurricanes. Um, uh, the strongest hur hurricane or typhoon of the year just hit the Philippines. So, and Israel and the Eastern Mediterranean had the worst drought in 900 years. And that's part of what precipitated the civil war in Syria. Hundreds of thousands of Syrian farmers had nothing to eat and they left their farms and they went to the cities and that's part of what destabilized Syria. So it's really not about the future, about future predictions. It's about the here and the now and whether we're going to wake up and, and address this crisis. But the, the, even in the Bible, there, I mean, climate uh, crises are as old as time you know, can tell. Like, uh, you know, Joseph uh, uh, interpreted Pharaoh's dream to mean seven years of famine and seven years of plenty and seven years of famine in Egypt. So... I think we can hardly say that that was due to, uh, you know, the industrial revolution. So, I mean, there's there's always been this and, and I'm not, you know, I'm not that's what I'm saying. I'm not trying to diminish the suffering of human suffering, because I think that that, you know, these hurricanes and these climate crises and these disasters are are problematic. But I mean, are we envisioning a. And this, I guess, goes back to the question I started with, because I'm, I'm like split. On one hand, it's hard for me to get on board with the whole like, okay, we need to have this international convention on climate change that's going to address because, you know, if we don't, then it's basically the day after tomorrow. Or, you know, as opposed to I'm all for living a life of sustainability and living an environmentally aware life and, and not, you know, wasting for no purpose. Um, but what I'm saying is, is, I mean, like, unless there, do we really believe that there's going to be this day after tomorrow scenario? Otherwise, why can't we leave it up to just, you know, humans to do what humans do, which is innovate and come up with solutions and, and, uh, and be creative. So first of all, I'd like to relate to what you said about, about Joseph and the famine and interpreting Pharaoh's dreams and those seven years of famine. So look, the, the, the book of Genesis mentions many famines. You know, God said to Abraham, you know, lech lecha, go to the land of, of Israel from Iraq, and Abraham gets here, and there's a famine, and he goes to Egypt. So according to the Jewish sages, there were 10 famines that in the book of Genesis, even though it seems to only mention a few of them. But, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all experienced famine in their lifetime. So you're right that, there, that famine is definitely a part of, of human history. 
and 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 we actually live in a time which where there hasn't been famine in the Western world in 90 years since the the Great Dust Bowl uh, of the 1930s. However, according to climate scientists, what we're experiencing now on this planet is 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 different than anything that has happened in human history. And and one of the main indicators for that is the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, there were about it never exceeded 280 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. And now we're at 415 and rising, and we're likely to double pre-industrial levels. So we're in, we're in a, and, and people will say, well, no, but, you know, millions of years ago, that was the case. Well, that may have been the case millions of years ago when there wasn't, you know, when uh, life didn't look like this on the planet and when there weren't 8 billion human beings. But if we want to continue to live here and, and not revert to a situation where we've melted Antarctica and the northern ice cap and, you know, everyone living within 50 miles or, you know, a mile of the sea has to flee. I mean, look, we're here in Tel Aviv, 2 million people, 2 million people south of here live in Gaza. And then in Haifa, almost, you know, that area, another close to a million people. Is everyone here just going to pick up and move inland? Like, like and, and, and what, we're going to ask the people in Jerusalem to just let, you know, several million people move in with us? That's totally unrealistic. Yeah. I also, I just don't want to move to Jerusalem. That seems... <laughs> <laughs> no offense. <laughs> yeah. My sister lives in Jerusalem. I mean, it'd be nice to visit with her, but... Now with the demonstrations, yeah. it's, it's a nightmare. <laughs> you can't um, commute... So tell us a little bit more about like how the the practical suggestions in the Echo Bible and how we can implement them in our lives. Mm-hmm. Like what kind of steps can we take? Give us the top three. Sure. So people sometimes ask me, well, what are the top three ecological impacts of our lifestyles? And I would say the number one is eating meat. How much meat and dairy and eggs do we eat? And that's a tough pill to swallow for many people because many people like eating animal products, whether it's dairy, eggs, or meat or fish, at every meal. However, there's a big ecological footprint from doing that. There's about 80 billion animals under factory farming, and that didn't exist when our Alter Zaidi and Bubi were living in the shtetl. Even fish is uh, problematic? Yeah, fish and seafood is problematic for different reasons, um, but many fish are being overfished in the world today. But they breed them, no? They they, they breed the uh, because I, I recently started to I moved mainly to fish, and I was thinking, uh, is that is that better than eating like mostly meat? Look, the biggest ecological... Give me something here, Rabbi. <laughs> <Yes>. Give me <laughs> something to hold on to. Something to sink your teeth into. Yes. So, look, a potato. The, the <laughs> biggest ecological impact comes from beef and from dairy, from cow dairy. And that's because cows uh, are an animal that has, uh, that's able to eat grass and it has a unique digestive system where it uh, regurgitates that grass and it has multiple stomachs. And in the process, it produces methane, which is a greenhouse gas that's about 60 times stronger than carbon dioxide in heating our planet. So if you want one thing to work on, that's beef and dairy. In terms of your question about fish and and seafood, so a lot of fish now is coming from aquaculture. Even here in Israel, you see 
these big ponds uh, between, you know, Netanya and Haifa. There's significant aquaculture. Also in the Galil, Galilee, there's aquaculture. Now, you might think, well, these are just nice ponds that, you know, grow fish. But the reality is, is that these fish ponds, and there's also shrimp ponds and all sorts of other aquaculture ponds around the world, they actually have a significant ecological impact. They, they produce waste. The fish produce excrement, and then you have to do something with that, and that goes into the water stream. Uh, in other places, like in, in Argentina and Brazil and Thailand and Malaysia, they're cutting down the man, mandrakes. The mangrove forests, which are like the rainforests of the wetland ecosystem, in order to make way for these aquaculture to grow fish for people to buy at Costco a salmon. So even fish has an ecological impact. That's why, you know, at, at the highest level, a plant-based diet is, is the ideal, and that's actually what God commands in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 30, God says to people, eat plants. And the next verse, God says to animals, eat plants, and it was so, vayihichen. And then God says, and, and behold, it was very good, tov ma'od. And why does God say it's it actually, was... I, that's amazing. I, I actually don't know this. So there was, there in the, like the creation story, so the, he says to he commands to the to people and to because I knew that there was a thing where that after Noah we started eating meat but before Noah everybody was vegetarian or something but I thought it was like a, a commentary like it's actually in the Bible it says eat vegetables yeah look part of what we're doing with this eco Bible commentary is just pointing out some things that are fairly overlooked. obvious overlooked you know uh, ecological awareness is overlooked in religion. That's, mm -hmm. that's the reality today. And as a result, ecological awareness is overlooked within humanity since, as I said, 85% of people identify with a religion. Okay. So the verse says that God said to people, eat plants. And God didn't say a lot of things to people in the first chapter of Genesis, but this was one of the things. And God said that to, to animals as well. And according to, to one study, crocodiles from you know long time ago had herbivore teeth. They didn't have carnivorous teeth. Crocodiles apparently were vegetarians. Okay, I must say I didn't relate to tip number one. Uh, what's tip number two? <laughs> but wait, I actually want to. I want to. I want to go into the. I mean, this is oh, an episode but about the eco Bible. For, we, we can't talk. We tips. can't not talk about the Bible. But we we asked okay. for three tips. Okay, I'll, I'll get to, I'll get to the tips in just a second. Okay. But I do want to ask about the uh, the Bible. Ooh, <laughs> the Bible. Uh, like, okay, so we he he commands the people to eat vegetables. When does that change, and why? So it changes with Noah, the generation of Noah. God destroyed the world because humanity was wicked, and following the flood, God says to Noah and his and his family who survived the flood, "Now you can eat meat." Now, according, there's different reasons that the rabbis give for why God gives this permission. According to one reason, Rabbi Hirsch says that, that the climate actually shifted on earth. And while for the first 1,500 years of human history that the Bible records, people ate plants. So thereafter, the next few thousand years of human history that the Bible records, it, it wasn't suitable for sustaining that. And, and that actually may have been the case. It's, you know, my ancestors lived in Lithuania, and that was difficult to subsist on a vegan diet. But in our times, Tel Aviv has close to 10% of vegans and vegetarians. It's a vegan capital of the world. And so it's, it's a lot easier now to eat meat, uh, to eat a plant-based diet. In terms of your, the, your question about the other two tips, 
So one is is reconsider air travel and how much we travel. With okay, the, I don't like tip number two as well. Good, look, you know. He loves traveling to Italy and, and eating creamy beef. pasta with meat. Yeah. So you're, you're, it's a tough sell to this guy. Look, if, if you wanted, you know, if you wanted someone to come here and just tell you to, you know, go to McDonald's and, yeah. and get his no, interest. Drive, no. drive a Hummer. I can, I don't know, reuse some bags. <laughs> It's not going to cut it, man. It's not going to cut it. Okay, so what's so air travel? Air travel, because airplanes are a very effective way of depositing carbon in the atmosphere. When, when people drive cars, part of that carbon gets absorbed into the ocean, or at least it has for the past 100 years, and, uh, and some of it gets absorbed by trees. But an airplane is in the atmosphere, so 100% of that carbon stays in the atmosphere, and it stays there for 100 years. So it is going to impact multiple generations and, and heat the planet. Now, people might say, well, no, look, I can't cut out air travel. Okay, so then let's just take, let's take a gradual approach. Think about how many times did you travel last year and how many times have you traveled this year? Most people have significantly reduced their air travel in the pandemic. And to be honest, a lot of people don't like the process of traveling. You know, of actually, you know, go, getting in the airport, going through security, customs, getting on a plane and all the more so now that you have to wear masks and that people are coughing. And so, look, here we live in, in Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. It's a beautiful land. And, and have you most, been to Italy? I've been to Italy okay. multiple times. And, and part of my organization does work. So you know. Yeah, we, we do work you know. with the Vatican because <laughs> Pope Francis is, is, is actually, if you, he has an encyclical, a, a book called Laudato Si of where he, he essentially, it's, a, it's like an environmental faith-based manifesto, which is very radical for many people, but is like very clear that, and, and, and it's not just Pope Francis, it's the Dalai Lama, it's uh, the ecumenical patriarch of the Orthodox Church, it's many Hindu swamis, it's other Buddhist leaders like Thich Nhat Tan, who wrote Love Letter for the Earth. And that, and that also goes back to your earlier point of, well, like, you know, with the climate scientists, like people arguing with them, well, that's why, you know, if you look at those religious leaders, the heavy hitters in religion, from the Pope to the Dalai Lama to Thich Nhat Hanh to the Swamis to Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs and Chief Rabbi David Rosen, these are people with amazing breadth of thinking who are, who are the spiritual leaders of our generation. And each one of them is saying that we have an urgent ecological crisis that we need to deal with. So it's not just about the science, it's about religion and religion and science coming together for the betterment of humanity. And tip number three? Tip number three relates to gold. So the, the biggest ecological impact in, in a single moment in a person's life is at a wedding. When, when, a, when, a, when a gold ring is given to, con to, you know, to make official the marriage, that ring actually has a tremendous ecological footprint. How so? Because, you know, I grew up in... Finally! I grew up in California, and there was a gold rush. You probably heard yeah. of the 49ers. Yeah, the Chaplin movie. Yeah, and, and so, and there was a gold rush in South Africa in the early 20th century, but in our times, there aren't gold rushes. You don't hear about people, you know, going to some place and finding a huge load of gold. And that's because humanity has mined most of the, the big gold nuggets that exist. And so today, gold is mined in many places through a process called cyanide leach mining, where they take, they go to an area where they know that there are gold filings, these little 
flicks of gold, specks of gold, and they, they take these huge truckfuls of earth and they pour a solution of water and cyanide over it in order to separate the, the gold filings from the dirt. And then they wash that dirt away and it goes in the rivers and the cyanide water pollutes the people downstream and causes cancer to, to, to people. And so they, a, one, I, I want, you know, a gold ring is actually... Uh, has a significant cyanide solution that comes with it. But you can use the second-hand ring. Amazing. So from your grandmother so or that, your grand-grandmother. Exactly. So that's an ecological solution to ask one's ancestors, you know, living, uh, can you give me a ring that you have, and then you can get it, you know... Sometimes it, uh, she's buried with it, and but you can solve that. <laughs> so, and, and actually what, what I did... Um, when <laughs> Not official advice, guys. <laughs> <laughs> right. So when my when when I got married, I I, or, I ordered a ring from a company in Texas that takes the gold in computers and melts them down wow. and makes recycled rings. That's so, I, so cool. What's the, what's their name? Um, Google it. Yeah. Google we, it. We, I gave it to her almost 14 years ago, so I forget. It's really name. awesome. Yeah. That is really cool. Yeah. Like made out of all Apple ones. Yeah. Yeah, and that actually, and that's part of a commentary in the Eco Bible that the that gold is mentioned many times in the Book of Exodus in relation to the clothing of the high priest, and the the the, the gold of the high priest was a place of holiness, and so we need to mimic that by if we're going to use gold by using it in a holy way that doesn't damage other people. Or I can use silver. Or is uh, it also... Silver mining is also problematic oh, okay. for... Yeah. Is there anything that I could... No, I'm kidding. But it's like... Where's the I ring, mean, by the way? Why did you show it? Because uh, we're not going to get into it. Okay? <laughs> oh, my God. I want Sean to be able to listen. No, I'm kidding. I lost it. I was with you in the car when I when I took it off and it fell between the handbrakes. Yes. Remember? That's yes. the story I made up. No, I remember <laughs> this moment. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, so it's still there. I couldn't find it. I searched okay. for it for hours. Okay. Anyway... <laughs> So, so um, yeah, we get to wrap I, things up. I, but but my last question is, I feel like almost anything, right? Because like almost anything you do, you can find some like negative ecological impact mm -hmm. or or even non-ecological impact. Like everything you do, it's like this the butterfly effect, right? Like everything you do in life might somehow impact someone negatively, sometimes more so, sometimes less so. And the question is like, how responsible are we for that? How, you know, like how much are we supposed to constantly think about the far off, you know, and, and how much of it is causation and how much of it is core, right? How much can we control what happens in the world by our individual actions? It's an amazing question. You know, the ecological crisis is a spiritual crisis. It's not about the birds and the bees or the trees and the toads. It's about how we live as spiritual beings in a physical reality. And we have many levels of soul awareness. In Hebrew, there are five levels according to the Kabbalistic teachings of nefesh, ruach, neshama, chia, yechida, these five different levels of soul. And actually, according to some Kabbalists, there's, there's 25 levels because each of those five levels has, has its own five levels. And so consumer society today is operating at the lowest level. And so we're, you're, you're asking, well, do we really need to be concerned about what effect that I have on the world we live in? 
And from a spiritual perspective, the answer is yes. We're not supposed to live like bulls in a china shop, you know, just sort of like smashing things and, you know, throwing our waste and, and littering and, and leaving our waste. And, you know, there was an Onion article that, that joked the big, you know, they did this interview with, uh, you know, this mid-level business person and said the biggest legacy is of their life is their garbage. <laughs> And, but that doesn't have to be. And, and part of the idea that we're bringing out through Eco Bible, which, by the way, is available on Amazon, both as a mm-hmm. Kindle I'm e-book. plug it officially thank you. very soon. Um, is that we can live at a higher level of soul awareness. And when we do that, we will actually be happier and we will cause less ecological impact to other people and to other species. And, and, and so, you know, for example, just taking a walk out on the beach here in Tel Aviv, a, a walk along the ocean, along the sea, that's an, that's an act that has no ecological footprint and is spiritually nourishing. You get to see the grandeur of, of creation. Unless they arrest you. Oh, I hope not, you know, especially if you're, if you're wearing a mask. Um, and, and so that's an example, you know, versus doing something of, you know, going into a mall and just, you know, buying stuff that we don't need. So that, that's showing that, that transitioning to a spiritual, ecological lifestyle, I think, is actually part of the evolution of humanity. It's sort of, we're at, and we're at a do-or-don't moment. And I'll just finish with a story that the Nobel laureate Tony, Tony Morrison told of, someone, of a young boy who came to an older woman with a bird in his hands. And he said to her, can you tell me whether the bird in my hands is alive or dead? And she thought to herself for a minute, and she realized the boy was playing a trick on her. Because if, the, if she said that the bird was dead, the boy would open his hands and the bird would fly away and she would be wrong. And if she said the bird was alive, then he would close his hands and crush the bird and either way she'd be wrong. He got her coming and going. And so she thought to herself for a minute and she said to the young boy, I don't know whether the bird in your hands is alive or dead. All I know is that the life of the bird is in your hands. Mm. So the book, where can one buy the book? The book is available on Amazon and Ingram and Kobo and iBooks as an ebook. Audio version? Uh, We're going to come out with an audio version. We're soon coming out with a hardcover for libraries. So, and we're currently selling it for $1.99 on Amazon as the ebook. And you get both volumes or each volume is sold separately? So, right, we just published last week Volume 1 on mm-hmm. Genesis and Exodus, and we're coming out in 2021 with Volume 2 on Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Nice. So, guys, stay tuned for that, Volume 2 of the Echo Bible, and you can get Volume 1 of the Echo Bible already on Amazon for $1.99. It's a pretty good deal. Yeah. Um, and without the waste. It's a digital, if you buy the digital version, it's... yes. Yes, yes. The most so friendly. check them out. Uh, also, you can you can find Jonathan Narrell online. Do you have like Twitter or Facebook? Yeah, we have a very active Facebook page. Also, the organization of the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development that I direct. Yeah, it's an NGO. It's an NGO. You accept donations. We do. Donations here in Israel are tax deductible in the U.S. as well. So look them up. Again, the name of the NGO. The Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development. Interfaithsustain.com. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you both. It was amazing. Before we go, uh, we're sponsored by The Forward. Check yes. them out. Please go to forward.com slash 2NJB, subscribe, and thus help us keep going because this supports the show. 
Yeah, so, and you also get great content. Forward.com yes. slash 2NJB. You get uh, an exclusive discount for our listeners. You get 67% off, like six months for 10 bucks. So check them out. Forward.com slash 2NJB. Yes. Great articles, opinions, news. Highly all recommended. through a Jewish lens. Um, also, Arutz Sheva. IsraelNationalNews.com. Check them out for amazing content in English from the Israeli perspective. Mm-hmm. And and lastly, if you want the Australian perspective, go to AJN.TimesOfIsrael.com, Australian Jewish News. We also have a collaboration with them, so check them out, AJN.TimesOfIsrael.com. Yes, and also we accept donations, so if you want to help us out, go to TwinJB.com slash donate. And that is it. Thank you so much. That Thanks. was really a really fascinating discussion. Thank you. Good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. Bye.